Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to answer the question, will Melbourne's median house price exceed $2 million by the end of 2032? You know, the unrefuted trend in all investment markets is mean reversion. Mean reversion means that a period of below average returns is always followed by a period of above average returns, so the returns eventually revert to their mean. It's my thesis that investment-grade property based on a long-term trend looks to be attractive compared to other markets, and there's several economic tailwinds that might actually contribute to the median house price doubling in Melbourne over the next 10 years, and that's what I'd like to talk about today. So, of course, in short, property prices are really driven mostly by the law of supply and demand. Demand, the demand side of that equation, is really dictated by interest rate settings, uh, unemployment and access to borrowings. The supply side of the equation is dictated by the volume of new construction and also consumer sentiment, that is, whether people are willing to buy and sell property to, to transact. In times of higher uncertainty, most people stop transacting, which is exactly what we've seen over the last 12 months. So I would like to talk about you know some of those macroeconomic uh, supply-demand factors firstly, um, that, that are going to you know really apply to almost the, the entire Australian property market. And then I'm going to drill down and talk a little bit more about Melbourne. Okay, so my first comment is that at the moment, uh, pricing and, and interest rate discounts in the mortgage market are ridiculously competitive. Uh, and all four bank CEOs over the last couple of months uh, through the media have commented how competitive it is and, and that it is the most competitive it's been in, in history. Uh, in fact, that there was a chart published in the Australian Financial Review a few weeks ago, uh, and I've got a link in the show notes, uh, that was put together by UBS. And they are predicting that um, banks are writing loans, new loans, um, and they're returning less than the cost of equity. So that is that they're not they're not particularly profitable, and in fact, in some circumstances, uh, the new loans with cashbacks and so forth are actually they're actually writing it at a loss. Now, I think I mean there's a good reason for for the the height of competition at the moment. It's because there's a whole bunch of fixed rate borrowers that are going to come off really low two percent sort of fixed interest rates, and banks want to retain that business. They don't want to lose that business after two years because they won't make any money. And so uh, I think when they, when most of those fixed rates have uh, expired, I would expect the banks to start sort of pulling those interest rate discounts back um, and the market will become less competitive compared to what it is today because it can't, it's not sustainable at the moment. If they're not making money, then it's certainly not sustainable. So arguably then there's a window of opportunity for borrowers at the moment to go and lock in a, an interest rate discount of circa 3%, maybe more, of an interest-only investment loan and uh, enjoy that discount because it's fixed really for the life of the loan, uh, enjoy that discount into the future. And so what I did is pulled out some data um, starting from 2003 and that's when the data set um, began 
And and uh, what I wanted to do is backtest and ask myself the question, if I had a 3% interest rate discount um, since 2003, so, you know, the last uh, 20 years, what would have that looked like in terms of interest rates? And the average interest rate over that period of time was 4.2%. And looking at the chart, again, I've got a link in the show notes, um, you can see that, you know, you could probably expect your interest rate between be between 4 and 5% over that time. So there is an opportunity at the moment, as I said, for investors that go and um, take out a new loan to lock in a really high interest rate discount, and it will mean um, uh, the probability is that you'll end up paying a lower interest rate over the next 20 years than you otherwise would have, and I think that's pretty attractive at the moment. Okay, the next uh, macroeconomic trend I'd like to talk about is solving the rental crisis. So the rental crisis obviously being well documented, and I've said in this podcast previously, it's going to get worse before it gets better, and that's true. The problem at the moment is borrowing capacities. Borrowing capacities have reduced by about 30-odd percent over the past 12 months, uh, mainly due to two factors, obviously rising interest rates um, and APRA sticking to its uh, 3% serviceability buffer used to be 2.5%. And there's a chart that was published by CBA in February that shows how dramatic borrowing capacity is, has really come back. Again, that chart's in the show notes. Now, I did a podcast episode a, a few weeks ago that um, highlighted that the rental crisis have be, has been caused by two main reasons. Uh, firstly, a lot of investors cashed out during 2020 and 2021 when the market was going strongly. Uh, and number two, uh, tightening in lending rules since the 2017 means there's been fewer new investors in the in the market. The only way to solve the rental crisis is to increase the supply of privately owned rental properties, which the government will eventually have to do. Now, I think they'll probably do a whole bunch of stupid things before they get there, but at some point they're going to have to reconcile that. And there's a couple of ways that they could achieve that. They could... Um, reduce the interest rate premium that um, banks charge investment loans. You know, investment loans attract higher rates than home loans. Um, They could reduce the 3% serviceability buffer. There's a few things that they could do, but they're going to have to do that. Um, Now, that means that in the future, there's going to be more money flowing into the property market from investors, which is going to stimulate property prices. So if we can can take action before that happens, um, because that's really the only way to solve the rental crisis... Uh, then you you know you can get in before that uh, wave of growth potentially starts. My third macroeconomic comment is really around population growth and unemployment. Uh, so obviously Australia's unemployment unemployment rate is, rate is at historic lows, three and a half percent. The ten year average is about five point four percent. So even if the unemployment rate um, increases, which it probably will and probably should, it's really not of a concern. Uh, low levels of unemployment really means that people, you know, have jobs if they want them, uh, that they can repay their mortgage, that they can upgrade their home if they want to make all those sorts of decisions that people wouldn't otherwise make if we had, for example, high unemployment. Uh, population growth has also been really well documented. Treasury forecasts is that uh, over the next two financial years, 650,000 people will come to Australia uh, normally, over a two-year period, you'd be looking at somewhere between four and five hundred thousand people, so pretty significant. Uh, not only does higher population mean greater demand for property, 
but most importantly, it means uh, it creates a, has an economic stimulus component there, um, which is uh, equally or if not more important for the property market. And my final macroeconomic comment was is on the supply side. So how many dwellings are we building? Now, it's interesting, over the past 20 odd years, I've read endless reports suggesting that Australia has a housing shortfall and undersupply. But I'm not sure I really believe them. I don't think that there's a chronic undersupply. I think maybe the market might be at equilibrium or possibly a slighter uh, undersupply component. At the moment, we're currently building around about 180,000 dwellings. And to me, based on population growth and natural increase, that seems about right. Now, of course, construction companies are going bust left, right and centre at the moment, so it's conceivable that you know Australia will build fewer dwellings over the next couple of years, and so there might be some level of undersupply, I'm not sure, but I'm not sure I really believe all the reports, which typically are put together by people that have, or groups that have vested interests in, in um, construction, I'm not sure I believe all of them. I guess the point I would like to make is that uh, housing supply is either at equilibrium or maybe uh, slightly in undersupply, but it's certainly not in oversupply. Uh, And so we could probably just assume supply is relatively fixed, uh, whereas those demand factors uh, are likely to be quite substantial, uh, which means that, you know, that the the fundamentals for the property market look pretty attractive. Okay, with that background then and context, let's talk, let's talk about the Melbourne property market. Now, I've got a few charts that I'm going to comment on here, and so it's a bit difficult to do this in a verbal sort of podcast, of course, but I'll, I'll try and do my best. Um, there's a chart that I have updated, I've put together previously, which charts property growth um, in uh, since 1980 for most of the capital city markets in Australia. And what the chart does is break uh, the property growth over the last four decades and demonstrates that typically markets move in two cycles. Uh, a flat cycle is typically followed by a growth cycle, which is typically followed by another flat cycle and so on and so forth. And all that demonstrates is that mean reversion is working in the property market as it does in lots of other markets. Um, But the highlight really is growth in Melbourne and Sydney since 2017. Um, Growth in both of those capital cities have have been below trend. Uh, Growth in Melbourne since 2017 is about 3% and about 3.4% in Sydney. That is well below the long-term growth in both those markets. Uh, Since 1980, Melbourne's grown at 8.2%, Sydney just slightly under 8%. So it certainly shows that the last five years has actually been pretty poor from a property growth perspective, although you wouldn't really believe it if you've been reading the newspapers because all they bang on about is the growth uh, that occurred in 2020 and 2021. Now, that suggests that um, both Melbourne and Sydney could benefit from some mean reversion, that is, a a growth cycle in the next few years. But I'd like to focus really mainly on Melbourne for two reasons. Firstly, investment-grade property in Melbourne is cheaper than Sydney, so it's more affordable for more people. You know, you, you if you've got a budget of say one two to one five in Melbourne, you're going to get yourself a, a really good quality property. You're going to need north of two in Sydney. Secondly, Melbourne is expected to benefit from much higher population growth than Sydney over the next decade. 
The projections are that Melbourne will increase by more than a million people uh, and uh, Sydney by uh, three quarters of a million people. Uh, and soon Melbourne's population will be um, higher than Sydney. So what I did then is um, drew a chart of Melbourne's property price. And again, you'll find the link in the show notes, so it's worth having a look. And as I said, Melbourne's long-term growth has been 8 to 8.2% over that period of time. Uh, and what I did is I overlaid on that chart the, the, the smooth line of 8.2% growth, uh, and then I put another line in there for 7.5% growth. And at the moment, the Melbourne median house price is um, close to that 7.5% long-term growth rate line. Now, every capital city excluding Perth and Hobart have generated more than 7.5% long-term growth. So I guess what I'm saying, if you chart those longer-term trends, it looks like or it appears that Melbourne is relatively undervalued compared to its long-term average growth rate. Uh, And so another way of saying that is Melbourne looks like it's good value, notwithstanding all the positive factors that I talked talked about, the the positive factors that the the overall uh, property market might enjoy. Uh, I took that chart uh, one step further and I projected forward over the next 10 years what those trend lines will do. Uh, And it suggests that, you know, if it follows that long-term trend, which we know markets always do, um, that the the average, the median, sorry, house price uh, will increase from 974,000, which is was which it was in December 2022, um, to uh, between 2 and $3 million by December 2032, so over the next 10 years. And the reason that there's such a large increase is, one, there's a bit of mean reversion that arguably Melbourne property on a, a, a macro level looking at this data uh, is undervalued and then it's just the, the average growth rate beyond that. Now, of course, it may not happen. You know, um, property might not be, or the median house price might not be more than $2 million in 10 years. I'll look forward to, you know, recording another podcast, uh, 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 reviewing that uh, that projection to see if I'm correct. I guess that the point I'm trying to make is that if you invest uh, with the benefit of mean reversion as a, a tailwind, uh, you know, you reduce your risk somewhat. So that is investing in markets that look to be undervalued, I think reduces your risk. Now, they might not be and you might end up just getting average growth. That's fine, but at least you're not investing in markets that look overvalued, which is, you know, kind of my concern. Look, I'm not saying this to um, blow my own trumpet or anything like this, but just to demonstrate how I've used this approach in the past. In November 2018, I ran a seminar in my office, uh, and anyone that attended that seminar would be able to attest to this. In the presentation, I presented a case for why I thought the Brisbane market represented the most attractive market at that time. And the reason I held that view in 2018 was that the growth in that market um, since 2011 had been really poor, well below average. Now, we know since uh, 2018, the Brisbane, the median house price has grown at a compounding annual rate of 9.5% since that time. And uh, since 2019, a lot of my clients, uh, based on my advice, have been investing in Brisbane and they've done incredibly well. My point is that I don't know when prices will take off in Melbourne uh, and when they will actually revert to the mean. 
I'm very certain, however, that it's a when question, not an if question. It's when will they start rising, when will they revert? And I'm attracted to the Melbourne market for the same reasons that I'm attracted to the Brisbane market. Firstly, there's a whole bunch of macroeconomic tailwinds. Uh, and then secondly, uh, Melbourne looks to be uh, undervalued from a meeting house price perspective, uh, which doesn't mean that you should go and pay anything for any property. Of course, you still need to make that value assessment on a, on a property basis, but just from an overall market perspective. Now, I should say, in the long run, I think if you invest in an investment-grade property in Melbourne, Sydney or Brisbane, that they're all three markets are going to deliver good returns over the next two or three decades. It's just, I think, Melbourne at the moment is particularly attractive to me. Okay, have a look at those charts in the show notes or the blog on the website. They'll make a little bit more sense, hopefully. And until next week, bye for now.